For those who are guests, maybe we've not had a chance to meet yet, let me introduce myself, and for those I've met 10,000 times, let me introduce myself to you as well, since we're saying each other's names today. My name is Wayne. It's my privilege to be part of the pastoral team, and I'm really glad you're with us today. We're going to look at Scripture. We're going to look at the Gospel of John. If you'll take a Bible, please. If you don't have one with you, there's one in the pew rack, and the Gospel of John, the biography of Jesus called John, is about, well, it's it's about three-quarters of the way through or more, and uh, you can see the page numbers on the screen behind me. If you don't own a Bible, take the one in the pew rack home as our gift to you. And we do, seriously, you, seriously, you can do that because we, we uh, I don't say lose, but we see about anywhere from five to a dozen Bibles disappear each weekend. So that's good news. That's really good, good stuff. So we're thankful for that. So before we look at John chapter five today, I want to start with a very triangulated, convoluted, difficult story. And uh, you're going to have to really put your thinking caps on and pull up your bootstraps and say, I'm going to listen hard because um, I've had, in between last service and this service, had a number of people come to me and say, Wayne, it was really hard. Tell it to me again. Well, that's because they're not the 11 o'clock crowd, so they're not quite as up, they're not as awake as you guys are, right? So see, see how we can do with this. Last weekend, you may, if you've watched the news, um, 20 Arab nations on, on Valentine's Day, 20 Arab nations began military exercises in northern Saudi Arabia. Military experts say it's the largest gathering of Muslim nations for military exercises in, in recorded history. 350,000 troops along with their planes and uh, their equipment, their tanks and everything in northern Saudi Arabia. The, the, it's... it's very large. It's going to go on for 18 days. So it's taking place today. It carries on through next week, carries right up to into March. All of these 20 nations in Saudi Arabia today are aligned and opposed against Syria. All right. They're not in Syria. They're in Saudi Arabia. It's not good to be Syria these days if you're familiar with what's going on in Syria. He's got ISIS there, battling, I mean, they've got, they're battling ISIS in Syria. And Syria uh, is led by President Bashar al-Assad. And he is under pressure to give up his role as the nation's leader. He became the leader of, his, of Syria in 1994 when his brother, his older brother, who was assumed was going to assume the presidency from their father, he was killed in a car wreck. Um, Bashar Assad was at that point an eye surgeon. He's a, an, an ophthalmologist by trade and was working, had a practice in London. He was called back to Syria to take over the presidency. And so he's got a lot going against him. He's got 20 nations backed by Saudi Arabia coming against him saying, we don't like you. And he's got ISIS in his own country saying, we don't like you. So he's got it coming from both sides, if you will. Now, the U.S., We're not participating in these military exercises, though, for the most part, if you were to ask who the U.S. would back, the U.S. would typically back Saudi Arabia and the other 20 nations that are listed there. It comes down to this. The Arab nations that are engaged in this great political stuff going on in the Middle East, in the Middle East, Really, it comes down to what type of Muslim they are. There are two basic kinds of of people when it comes to Islam. There are Sunni Muslims and there are Shia Muslims. And the Saudi Arabian group are all Sunni Muslims. The um, people in Syria and Iran are Shia Muslims. 
And so you would think about, keep that slide up there for a second, guys. You would think about this. If you are Syria or Iran, you're in a deep, deep trouble because you've got Saudi Arabia and their allies coming against you. And then you have ISIS coming against you. And Saudi Arabia is not supporting ISIS. As a matter of fact, Saudi Arabia is also fighting ISIS. See how strange and crazy our world is at present? Because if you, if you will, you have to add two, some more nations to that. Namely, keep the slide, go to the next slide, guys, if you can. Thanks so much. In addition to that, you add Turkey and the US. We are allied with the Sunnis, with Saudi Arabia, and you've got Russia allied with um, Syria and Iran. So it's a problem. As a matter of fact, there are Russian troops today and Russian uh, planes in Syria acting on Bashar Assad's behalf bombing ISIS, and yet they don't like what's going on in Saudi Arabia, and they particularly, right now, the Russians don't like the Turks. The Turks, a Russian uh, fighter pilot recently entered into Turkish territory. The Turks shot it down, killed the pilot, and there's all this immense struggle between, if you will, these three different groups, and the struggle is so intense that um, Russia this week said, that if any foreign troop sets soil in Sir sets foot, pardon me, on the soil of Syria, that will be considered an act of war against Russia. So, if Turkey, for example, was to do something against Russia, if Saudi Arabia was to do something against Russia or against Syria, then that's an act of war against that nation, as far as Russia is concerned. And if Turkey does it, guess what? Tur Turkey's in NATO. And NATO says if you invade one of our countries, we all have to go invade. We have to counterattack. So it is a mess, a mess by all means. And some of you are going, what's that got to do with John chapter 5? Well, it really does. I want you to hang with me. Okay, you got the scene politically, what's taking place in the Middle East right now. And you go, okay, so what else is there? Well, there's more factors to the story yet. You've got to think about Turkey and its role, a NATO nation, so forth and so on, and this struggle that they're having with, with Russia. What's, what's Turkey got to do with John chapter 5? Well, remember, Turkey has been a world player on the world stage for centuries. Uh, for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, Turkey was, in fact, the world's leader. We don't think of it that way today, but have you ever heard of the Ottoman Empire? The Ottomans. They took world dominance in 1299 and really led the world until the late, 20th, late 19th century when Britain became the world's leader. And so for many years, they ruled the world for 600 years or so. And um, what they began to see, the Turks noticed that as their power began to diminish and as Britain's power began to increase towards the beginning or middle years of the, um, of the 19th century, the Turks were looking around, the same Turks that are at war, if you will, or at struggle with Russia right now and with Syria, they're they looking around and they're going, okay, we can see that this is going to shift, that we may not be as strong and Britain's going to get stronger, which they did. Because remember, Britannia ruled the waves, the British ruled the, the seas and the, with their navy. And so, hang with me, it gets convoluted. They said, we've got to do something to appease the British. We should give the British something we own. And so they looked around and they said, Queen Victoria, remember her? Well, we don't remember her, but you may remember her story from scripture. I mean, from history, not from scripture. 
I'll get the story straight. She's the one who's basically invented the Victorian era, longest reigning monarch that Britain's ever seen, up until we get to Queen Elizabeth. And uh, they said, hey, hey, Queen, in order to keep in your good favor as this is taking place, is there something we own that you would like to have? And we would suggest one of two things. We would suggest either a small piece of land in Jerusalem, or we've got this little island off the coast of Greece that we own. It's called Cyprus. What would you like to own? We'll give it to you free of charge in order to curry favor. And so Queen Elizabeth had some thought about that, and she made a decision. You tell me how you'd decide if you were offered a piece of land in Jerusalem or the island of Cyprus. What would you choose? You'd have this, that's Cyprus, and this, and this, or you'd get that. In the middle of winter in Great Britain, what would you choose? Let's go back one more time. All right, so you've got Cyprus, which looks like that, and like that, and like that. Anybody up to go visit there right now, right? Right? Or we'll give you all of that, or we'll give you this. What would you choose? She chose Cyprus. Just a smart lady, right? She chose Cyprus and said, I don't want the land in Jerusalem. And so with that, the Turks said, okay, you can have Cyprus. And by the way, they were still looking for some other nations that they could win favor with. And they said to the French, hey, we've got some things to give away. And we've got this piece of land in Jerusalem. Would you like it? Cyprus is already gone. And the French said, yes, we'll take the land in Cyprus. And they did what a good French, French um, Roman Catholic would do. And they said, when we, on our little sliver of land, we're going to do something that's really religious. And they built a church in the middle of Jerusalem, or at that point was on towards the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. It's called the Church of St. Anne's. And it so happens, now you're still going, okay, I'm still trying to figure out, they got the military exercises in Saudi Arabia, I got the, the Turks and the Russians, and now we've gone through Cyprus and we're in Jerusalem at St. Anne's. Okay, so Leslie and I visited St. Anne's Church in 2014. Uh, we were walking through the city, we came across this little church, it's not very big, walked in there, and one of the monks came out to meet us. He said, um, hi, welcome, and a uh, French guy dressed all in white. They're known as the White Fathers. And he said, um, nice to have you here. Do any of you sing? Um, I said, well, she sings. She's a soprano. And he says, well, this church is famous for singing, particularly, and I learned after the fact, it's famous for sopranos from all around the world going to St. Anne's and doing concerts there because the acoustics, particularly for sopranos, is brilliant. I mean, they're brilliant. So he said, would you sing for us? So we stood in this little circle with the monk, and, and um, Leslie sang How Great Thou Art. And the room got really quiet, and her voice filled the space. And it was spectacular. And she came to the end of the song and there was this like this pregnant pause. And the guy says, we've been visited by God today. Which was really nice to say, right? And you're going, well, that's nice, but that's not the end of the story, is it? No, not quite. I do want to figure out the military exercises in Saudi Arabia. Because here's what happened. The French, when they got that piece of land and they built the church, they carried on there for a few more years until biblical scholars were looking around one day and they thought, 
why is that land right outside the church? So it's a little bit different. Should we dig around out there and see what's there? And so in the late 19th century, they began digging around. And they went down 30 feet or so, and they came across some archaeological finds that are found in John 5 today. I'll explain to you after we read John 5 and have a few more chats as to why I've told you that big, long story. Because the story that I've just told you all goes back to John chapter 5, because when they dug around down at the bottom of St. Anne's Church, they found the Pool of Bethesda some hundred years ago. Read with me. John chapter 5, we read this. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. Those are the pools that archaeologists found about 100 years ago right outside the St. Anne's Church. The church that was given to the French by the Turks, the Turks who are, were leaders of the Ottoman Empire, the same Turks who are today in this great struggle with the people of Russia and the military of Russia and the Russians and the Syrians are together who are aligned against the people in Saudi Arabia. It all ties together. It's crazy, but here we go. So they have the little pool called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and one who has been there, pardon me, one who was there had been there an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone always goes down ahead of me. They had reason to believe that from time to time, healing properties would come into the water, and whoever was in, got in the water at that time, if you could get in first, you could get healed. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. What's that got to do with the military exercises in Saudi Arabia today, right? Well... The present sermon series that we're engaged in, Brian started at Forest last week, it focuses on this one biography of Jesus. There are four different biographies that are found in the Bible that relate to the story of Jesus. This is one of them. And last December, we began, frankly, looking at what does the Bible say about Jesus before he was born? You may remember we did a series of Jesus in Isaiah. It was called Unto Us. We saw how Jesus was portrayed by the writer Isaiah 600 years before he was born. We're doing the same thing now leading into Easter during this Lenten series, saying what does the Bible say about Jesus when we're looking at Jesus in the Gospel of John, in the biography of Jesus. And so John was a unique disciple and he was one of Jesus' three closest disciples. And he had, if you will, as an eyewitness, he had a front row seat to all of Jesus' ministry. And his perspective is quite unique. As a matter of fact, later on in the book of John, in chapter 20, he makes a statement as to why he has written all this down and why he feels and indicates that his writings and his biography of Jesus is so important. He says, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In other words, there was a lot of things that went on in Jesus' ministry and in his life that I don't have, didn't have time to write down. But these ones... These ones here are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, if we pay attention to what John writes and then believe that, we are given new life, we are given eternal life. And I hope that throughout the coming weeks in this Lenten period, you'll take a look at the Gospel of John. You'll read through it and see, okay, what did, what did Jesus really do? 
Because if I, if, if I can convince you to say, if you can read it and, and follow what John says, he wrote these down so you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and if you believe that, then you get to have eternal life, then I'm up for reading. Are you? I would suggest that you might take a look at what's on the back of your program today and make certain that you're getting the texts or the emails that we're sending out twice a week that would help you read through the book of John and pay a little bit of attention to what's going on about how John presents Jesus. And we'll send you two texts or two emails a week, all right? Just ways for you to doing Lent to kind of focus a little bit. We have 800 people in the church doing this, by the way. We've heard from 800 people. So that is really cool. So if this, written, if this book is written to help us, to help us understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, then what can we say about John 5 in that regard? How does John 5 help us know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And again, what's it got to do with Saudi Arabia? Well, let me see if I can give you some observations from the text, and then we'll wrap it all together, all right? Because this is a fascinating passage of Scripture. Straight up. This man who was healed by Jesus is at first glance quite similar to you and me, at least in regards to his story. Jesus describes him as an invalid, and we don't know the details of his disease. We don't know exactly what Scripture meant in this case when it said that he was an invalid. Does that mean he couldn't walk? There weren't wheelchairs around in those days. And so I don't know the details about all that, but, and I'm not aware of, the, you know, of all the fine stuff of his struggle, but I'm aware of this. It had been in play for 38 years. There must be all sorts of ins and outs to his story, convoluted stuff, if you will, that's very similar to what I told you at the beginning of our time together. But whatever the story was, it was 38 years, 38 years in the making. A convoluted story that took 38 years for him to meet the master healer. And here's where you're like him and I'm like him. You've got a convoluted story too, don't you? Don't you? For some, it is 38 years long because you've lived 38 years or more. For some of you who are younger than that, you go, well, mine's not 38 years long. Well, it probably will become 38 years long at some point, right? And you, some in the room, I better say, well, it's longer than 38 years. As a matter of fact, it's decade after decade after decade. If they were to write a story, if John was to come and write my story, it would be page after page, chapter after chapter. In fact, it'd take two or three books to write my story. I'd say that's the same for me. You know, for weeks now, for 22 years, I get up here and with other pastors and tell you the story of my life, and so you know a lot of details about it. But there are still parts of my life that go like this that you're unfamiliar with, and I'm not familiar with all your stories, where they all go. But I know that you've got a family, and that's part of the story. I know you've got fears, that's part of your story. I know you've got friends, that's part of your story. And I know you've got some foes, and that's all part of your story. And it goes like this. I have a great story to tell you today. Three years ago, one of the young couples in our church adopted a young little, a tiny little baby boy in Congo. Josh and Emily Koskin adopted a little boy. When I say adopted, I don't mean that they just said, we'd like to bring that kid, that little boy, that child to the U.S. No, they adopted him, and the sense was they were headed there any minute. They were headed there to go pick him up. 
And the Congolese government, just after the adoption was official, just after they paid all thousands of dollars, the Congolese government said, no, we're not letting any Congolese kids out of the country. So in the three years since that took place, that young couple in their 20s, each month have paid for that little boy to be cared for by, another, by a woman. And she's kept him in her home. And they have this little boy over there in Congo that they have parented long distance. Until on Friday of this past week, the Congolese announced there were 160 children that were going to be released to families. And on Wednesday, Josh and Emily are going to go pick up the little boy in the Congo. Is that cool? Or what? Now, there's ins and outs of that story. If you knew the times that we've cried on each other's shoulders and you've, they've wanted, Wayne, this is costing. I mean, are we, are we making the right decision? And I'm not talking about just $20 a month, guys, where you're paying for a little kid's food. I'm talking about full-on parenting long distance. It's a convoluted story. For that matter, the building of these pools is a very convoluted story. We know from archaeology and from Scripture, they began building that, those pools at Bethesda, the Bethesda pools, some 800 years before Jesus was born. There was a little creek that ran outside the city of Jerusalem, and they dammed it up, and they said, this can be a water source for us. And so they began that. Then 600 years later, they said, that's not big. 600 years later, they said, we need some more water. So they created a second pool. And by the time you get to Jesus' life, they actually had five pools. And then they thought, well, we'll expand the city walls a little bit. And they actually put the city walls on the outside of that so that they went, so the, the creek came on the inside of the city, and by the time you get to Jesus, you've got these pools that have a very convoluted story that's at some 800 years long. Huh. It's all right there in the text if we knew it, right? <coughs> Building the pools took those 800 years, and we've got this guy with a 38-year-old story sitting at the water's edge, just like you and me, a long story in the making, just like the military exercises in Saudi Arabia today. But I do get this much about it. I've got lots of questions about it, but I got this much. I figured this much out. This unwell guy wanted to be well. I love the question that the master healer asks him. Do you want to be well? He's like you and me. We want the unwell parts of us to be well. I mean, if we're sick in any way, we don't want to be sick. I mean, you can have the, a cold that lasts a week, and by the time the week is done, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? Right? Or you can have not just a cold, but you can have, if you will, a debilitating illness, a chronic pain, or a terminal illness. And you say, I don't want that. I don't want it for 38 minutes, let alone 38 years. And beyond the physical issues, we don't want any other sorts of unwell stuff within our lives. We don't want unwell relationships. And we don't want unwell emotional landmines within us. You know, we all have them, those places within us where something happens and, and something explodes beyond our control. And it seems that they go off in the most inappropriate times and in the most unplanned ways. And we get hurt and we hurt others they experience collateral damage. Now, we don't want to live like that. We want the experience and reality of, of uh, the Bible to be our experience. We want, we want the abundant life that Jesus talked about. He said, I come and so that you'll have life and have it abundantly. We go, where is that? 
John apparently understood that because on another occasion when he was writing in 3 John, a different book, same writer, he prayed a promised prayer for us. This is what he prayed. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting well. Huh. I want it all to go well with me. My soul is settled before God. I've got that figured out. But there are lots of things that I still want to get settled, and I can say they're not. And I'm aware, perhaps you're aware, that the enemy of my soul, namely Satan, is also the enemy of my body, and he's the enemy of my health, my family, my career, my provisions, my resources. And at times, that battle for wellness in those areas is a battle that seems to take way longer than 38 years. And here's an observation about that. That battle can take a toll in a very convoluted way that intersects with a very convoluted story. And in a nutshell, I think that's the story of this guy. See, because if you keep reading in the rest of the passage, I don't think you're going to like him. I don't think I like the guy. We read that he'd been in need for 38 years, and I just wanted to go, 38 years you've been sitting by the side of the water and you're still needing help after 38 years? Maybe he's not a nice guy. No one is willing to help him get in the water. See, apparently they believed, and we have every reason to think this, because they all sat there waiting for the moment when the waters are stirred, when there's this healing power in the water, and whoever gets in the water first gets healed. For 38 years you didn't have one friend who could drop you in the water? What kind of guy are you? You're, you're a rotten, ugly guy, aren't you? He hasn't made one friend in 38 years that'll help him get in the water. I don't think I'd like him either if that's the case. I mean, look at this guy. John chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. You would think this is the best day in this guy's life and he's going to do everything he can to to say, thank you, Jesus. Huh. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath, and so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he said, well, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Nothing like, hey, guys, it's okay if I'm carrying, this is a great day. Is it all right that I carry my mat on this day? Don't you think it's all right that I'm kind of speeding a little bit right now? It's good news. I, I mean, I, I've got good stuff. And so they asked him, who is this fellow who picked up, who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd who was there. If I've got an illness for 38 years and a guy comes along and heals me, I'm going to say, thanks, dude, what's your name? <laughs> Not this guy picks up his mat. I'm out of here. What, what sort of guy is that? Any wonder he didn't have any friends who's going to put him in the water for 38 years. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, see, you are well again. And then Jesus says something he really says to anybody about their sins. I mean, Jesus didn't usually condemn people. He says to this guy, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Whoa! The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. See, here's, what kind of guy is this? 38 years of struggle come to an end, and the first thing he, see, the first thing he does is, I'm going to throw Jesus under the bus. 
Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the Jewish authorities were often looking for a way to entrap Jesus. They were looking for ways to set him up. If he'd done anything that they found offensive, they wanted to, let's, let's categorize that and, and let's collect that because we can, if he's broken the law, we can, we can crucify him. Like working on the Sabbath. And when he was crucified, that was one of the charges brought against him. And in Jewish law, the Sabbath, the Shabbat, was and is a day of rest. No work takes place. And by providing healing, the authorities see that as Jesus doing a job. And then certainly by telling the guy to put his mat on his shoulder and walk out, he's working. So you got this guy who apparently at first is unfriendly, a personality that drives people away as compared to bringing them in. And then what does he do to protect Jesus from those who are looking to make trouble for Jesus? Nothing. He says, oh, oh, by the way, there's the guy over there who healed me. And if you want to get somebody in trouble, pick on him. Give me a break. Talk about convoluted. He's an unattractive personality and he's an ungrateful snitch. Right? Huh. What kind of guy is this? Talk about a crazy story. Remember, remember, I told you that the story of the Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Cyprus and the discovery of the pools and so on would all come together. Here's what I want you to see. There's a lot of background to this story. Some of that background includes all that mess of the military stuff going on in Saudi Arabia today. It includes the way in the, which the pools of Bethesda were created and then excavated. It includes that, that little church that's on the side of the, the drop-off down to the pools in Jerusalem today. And there's more to the story we haven't had, haven't had time to go into. For example, go home today and take a look at this passage. Do some looking around on the internet. Why is verse 4 missing? Did you see that? One, two, three, five. What happened to verse four? I'll just leave that with you. That's another part of the story we didn't get the chance to get in today. Or here's another part. Why is it that Jesus chooses to heal this guy and not somebody who'd much be much more, un, much more grateful? What's with that? Uh, did, weren't there others who needed to be healed? Were they left unhealed? I don't like that. And yet here's the big observation. Tying up the story of Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Russia and the pools and this guy. I can't get there. We don't know the end of the story yet. But despite the ins and outs of the story, despite the struggles to get the pools constructed, despite the apparent poor social skills of the needy fellow, and despite the potential of um, what Jesus faced if he broke the law, Despite all of that crazy mess that we, I've just brought to you today, with all the questions that it's raised in your mind, here's the truth. In the midst of the convoluted story, Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up. And in showing up, he met the guy's needs. And I'm very clear about this aspect, that despite the background to your story, despite the moments when you were ungrateful, despite the moments when you and I do not deserve God's work in our lives, despite all the ins and outs and the stuff that you don't have the answers for yet, Jesus shows up. And I'm convinced he'll show up today through the presence of his Holy Spirit in your life, and healing is about to come to you. In fact, I want to give you, if I can, we want to give you some moments where you could experience that healing in a special way. 
want you to imagine right now you're sitting by the pool of Bethesda and you're waiting for Jesus to show up and fix the story of the last 38 years. You have a busy life. I have a busy life. And sometimes that busyness even encroaches into our worship services where we put a lot of stuff in, that, in an hour and 15 minutes. For the next three minutes, create some space. I'm going to go to the piano and I'm going to play a melody that some is, is familiar to some. The words to it are going to appear on the screen. No one's going to sing. And I'm not trying to draw attention to the piano. More so, I'm going to use it as a way for you just to be quiet and go. You know, there's a place of rest. It's quiet rest. It's near to the heart of God. If I can get here today in the quietness of this moment, I'm going to give space for Jesus to show up in the deep, deep recesses of my spirit and begin to bring some answers and some resolution to my story that is now coming up on 38 years of it long, will soon be 38 years, or 38 years was a long time ago. Be quiet, listen, experience, and allow Jesus to show up in your life right now.
Let's pray together, friends. God, we've got stories. I mean, I look over this room and I know lots of them, God, and some of them are way past, <laughs> way past 38 years. And some are coming up on 38 years long. And some of them, Lord, are more convoluted than others. Others are kind of simple. And yet, God, some are like, well, the Saudis have nothing on my story. But God, in all of those, I pray that, I pray that Jesus Christ would show up. And Lord, that in this moment of quietness right here, we'd be reminded again that it was never your intent for us to be unwell. But it's your intent for us to live with a prospering of our lives that is similar to the prospering of our souls before you. So work that out, Lord, for us this week. Not just uh, kind of sort of happening, but like 38 minutes after we leave this room, so that we walk into the events of this afternoon and the responsibilities of tomorrow with you, the master healer, going with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.